Ladies and gentlemen, it is my enormous pleasure to introduce to you an extraordinary man. His name is Tim Smith. Tim is the founder, creator of the Lost Gardens of Heligan, a beautiful, extraordinary estate that was lost sometime in the early 20th century, recovered, rebuilt and restored to its full glory and its full intended glory as well. Following that, he created, he founded the Eden Project, also in Cornwall, two gigantic biomes, domed hemispheres that contain two different biomes within them of a rainforest climate and a Mediterranean climate. It is one of the most extraordinary things and the most popular tourist attractions in the UK today. Ladies and gentlemen, please give him an extremely warm welcome, Mr. Tim Smith. And uh, we're recording this for the radio, so can I ask you to turn your mobile phones off? Although, you know, there's a fair bit of music banging on in the background, perhaps it doesn't matter too much, or just at least put them on silent in any case. Hello, Tim. We need to start by talking about how pigs changed your life. How did that happen? Uh, I gave up the music industry. I moved to Cornwall because I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to be in London. Uh, I then got desperate. I didn't know what I was going to do as a career that was not music. A friend gave me a pig. I really liked the pig. The pig was called Horace. Uh, he was a black pig, and he liked to come into the kitchen and warm his ass against the aga. And I talked to him. I talked to him a lot. And then eventually, I realised I was lo he was lonely. So I got Doris. So I had Doris and Horace. And eventually, they discovered each other, and they made beautiful music. And then we, one day in November of 1990, there were 13 little baby black pigs. Uh, so I decided that obviously this was a sign. It was a sign that I was meant to have a rare breed park. Obviously. Obviously. So I went to find some land where I could have a rare breed park. So I found some land where I could have a rare breed park. And I went to see the guy who owned the land that I wanted to have a rare breed park on. And he gave me a very hot, hot cup of coffee. Now, that was where my very sensitive lips changed my life because he told me immediately I couldn't have the land to have a rare breed park, but because the coffee was so fucking hot, jolly hot, I, I still had to make small talk. And so I made small talk, and I, during the course of the small talk, I mentioned that I'd been an archaeologist, and he said, crikey, you're an archaeologist. He said, I've just inherited the estate next door, and I'm told that there's wonderful things under the overgrowth. Would you like to come and have a look at it? And the following day, I find myself cutting myself into a garden with a big machete. And the rest, as they say, is history, because I fell in love with that and decided that I was meant to restore this garden called Heligan, which we then called the Lost Gardens of Heligan. Tell me how, about this process of discovery, though, how you actually found your way into the garden and what you saw when you got in there. Well, it is extraordinary, really, because it feels like a romantic confection with the passage of time, but imagine you have arrived at a place that is completely overgrown, where the laurels are probably as wide as a man's arms can reach like that, and there's brambles and ivy weaving through all of them. And you've got to imagine that perhaps six weeks before that, there'd been a hurricane in Cornwall in which just about every single major tree had been blown over. So you arrived in a landscape that probably as tall as the bottom of the awning of this tent was bramble and uh, laurel cutting our way through. And eventually, we came to a walled garden. So everybody in the room, you've got to imagine a wall literally as tall as that awning and you just come to it, and in the middle of that wall is a door, and the door is very slightly ajar. You know the sort of thing, the rusted hinges, the paint peeling, and light just coming through a chink. And there's probably no, you wouldn't be here listening to me if you aren't the sort of people that would have wanted to open that door. And I opened the door, I pushed it open with my shoulder, and I just fell hopelessly in love with this place because 
probably double the length of this wall was uh, a vinery, you know, for growing uh, grapes, vines. But all the wood had rotted out long ago, and the glass was just hanging in the brambles and, and catching the light. And I cut my way in gingerly, and there was this moment, I, I, it's as fresh as if it was yesterday, where I caught a glimpse of a, a nail in the plaster, and there was a tiny pair of scissors hanging off it through a hole of the, you know, put your fingers through, which are vine scissors. And the moment I saw them, my eyes started to pick up all over the place the tools that were just lying there everywhere. You know, and it was as if someone had said tea time, they'd all gone, but no one had come back. They just left it. But it had this feeling of an unresolved moment. And uh, as I say, I fell in love with the place and decided I would change my life and restore those gardens. And I think everybody needs, I think maybe it's a question of age at a certain point. You need to be, you need to seize your life in that particular way to have a sense that that was what you wanted to do and just grab it. And I've never regretted it. It sounds like, uh, as you say, a quite a, like a, a like a fable almost. It sounds like a, a fairy tale where there's a you know a sleeping princess inside the middle there somewhere with briars and brambles grown all over it. It's also a little bit like Great Expectations in a way, Miss Havisham's house where the clocks have stopped. How long had those tools been lying there abandoned? Probably since the end of 1915, because the all of the all of the garden staff had. Uh, volunteered for the First World War by the end of 1915, and more than two-thirds of them would then die. Uh, and the chap that owned the stately home was so, so desolate because of that that he didn't ever want to return to the house, and the whole place was just shut up. So the First World War had come along, and nearly all the workers had been killed in France. And France and Belgium, yeah. France and Belgium, and that was that. And it just out of sheer heartache, it had it had been stopped, stopped as a snapshot in time. Well, the house had also been used as a, he'd given the house over to be a shell shock hospital during the First World War, but he never returned, and the house would eventually be turned into flats, but they'd fenced off the gardens, uh, so the gardens had just gone slowly to sleep. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of trees growing through it, all the glass houses were down. Um, but the, the moment, I think, which was most transformative was, it was when we started excavating we went into one of the outbuildings, which was the Thunderbox room, the toilet. And when we cleared out the slates that had fallen down and, had, you know, they were gutted. You've got to imagine a building that's been gutted and everything's fallen in. So as we took everything out, the plaster became revealed. And we could see that in the plaster, people had written in pencil. And when we sort of used magnifying glasses on it, it said, come ye not here to sleep nor to slumber. And it was dated really rather eerily, August 1914, and all of the then garden staff had signed their names under it. The next time you see most of those names is on the war memorial in the three local hamlets. Oh. That's, that's un almost unbearably poignant. That is, come ye not here to sleep nor to slumber. It's a, a call to labor, a call to action. It, it must have felt like it was a, a call to you. Yeah, except it was in a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> So what's the story of this, of this estate? How was it built? How did it come to be, once be, a, a kind of the beautiful thing that it was way back when? But what's really quite interesting, I mean, one of, the, um, one of the only good things I can say about aristocracy is that they do have a long view, so they do things like plant trees and shelter belts and do things with a very long term, which I think would be great if politicians could do. Uh, but uh, these... These estates were also pretty much self-sustaining, except in the luxuries. I mean, at Heligan, 
the only thing that was imported other than luxury goods was um, coal, when uh, coal was needed for the boilers from the middle 1800s. That's about it. Were, this, were the gardens there self-sustaining? Was that the purpose of them, to provide uh, produce for the manor house and the and the, the people who lived and worked on the estate? Yeah, there was, yeah, the, 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 there was a home farm and a, a very big productive gardens. For any of you who've been there, there are, there are three walled, four walled gardens and a big productive garden, which was planted cereally and uh, you know, in crop rotation, but also to make sure that the ripening of the crops was, was so that you had food all the year round. And also a very sophisticated me mechanism for planting fruit on north-facing and south-facing walls so that they were ripening later and selecting fruit as well that would not only ripen later but that would store. So what we did when we restored the gardens was to try and collect all the original fruit and no one quite knew what had been there. Um, and I hit on the idea of using a metal detector and I picked up all the original copper zinc plant name labels uh, which we found, we found almost the complete collection, which we then washed with soft, uh, with um, uh, soapy water, and then rub olive oil into it, and the Indian ink and the olive oil react, and you can read it as clearly as if it was written yesterday. It's brilliant. So the collection you see at Heligan is the best collection. I think I'm boasting, but it's, I think it's true. The best collection of heritage vegetables in Europe. Did you have photos of the estate as it once was to use as a guide to how you wanted the estate to end up? I'd love to... I'd love to imagine that I was such a thinker. No, it was an adventure. I've always liked the idea of doing things which can't finish. One of the things I hated when I was in the music industry was you'd start a song and then finish it. And I always felt sad. And I think the idea of always traveling and never arriving actually pleases me very much. That's why I want to do big things, because then you don't have to finish. And then if you're in charge, no one knows when it's finished, because it's you that decides where it is. <laughs> Did you want to return Hel Heligan to a functioning estate, or did you want it to sort of be more like a, I don't know, a, a museum or a theme park of these lost trades? I think I wanted it to be many things, I, but I, most importantly, I wanted it to be a place where people could get a respite from the noise of the, well, the background noise of the world outside, and uh, get a sense of place. It's a very romantic place. It sounds like a mar marketing tool to say it's the most romantic garden in the world, but most people that go there say they think it's the most romantic place, to, place they've ever been. If you were to ask me the single thing I'm proudest of in terms of end result, it would be that more than 400 people since we've opened the gardens have chosen to have their ashes scattered there. That's very humbling because you realize what that teaches you is that you're no more than a steward at a moment in time and you revealed a place that other people feel is important, and that's great. Why did you want to bring people in to have a look at the place before you'd finished restoring it? Because most people want to be part of an adventure. The idea of passively coming and ogling someone else's heroics is profoundly dull. We find that most of the people who became friends of Heligan in the start remain friends to this day, and that's why when we opened Eden Project, we decided we would do the same. We would open it before it was finished. It had two functions. One is that an awful lot of people loved the idea of seeing all the work going on, and the other was that anybody working there wasn't going to be leaning on a spade with half a million people looking at them. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly wanted it to be educational, but what's your approach to that? Do you sort of want to put the, the beauty and the pleasure at first and then find the educational aspect flows from that? How, what's your thinking on that like, Tim? Beauty must always come first. 
beauty and joy, because once you've got beauty and joy, education follows very easily. Um, it's very trite, actually. I mean, I'm aware that as I said that, that's a very trite thing to say, but I think, uh, for example, if, if I move on to say um, Eden, the things that I get more letters about are the quality of the binding on the bamboo handrails than we get about the biomes. People love the detail that make that is life-affirming. I don't know what it is. It's like your favorite records. They've got a really nice twist in them. And there's something that you know someone loved this. And I think people forget that, that we're creatures. That's all we are, creatures. And the things that move us are not massive, sort of fascistic, big things. The Eden Project, or Heligan per se, doesn't move you. What moves you is a handwritten plant label. It is the idea that someone bothered to tie the onions in a nice way, it, that someone bothered to choose a table that was nice to have a cup of tea on or a mug that was good. The bigness is actually a, a male distraction. I, I really feel that now. The older I get, the more I realize how much is vanity. I was the chair of a contemporary art gallery in uh, Brisbane for about eight years, and any time I used the word beauty, there would be someone go, oh, the whole idea of beauty is really problematic. Do you want to rescue that term, beauty, Tim? Yes, I think one should probably kill the people who said the, what they said to you. <laughs> I want to w eradicate the word problematic from the English language entirely, along with iconic, but that's a whole other project that's what we'll be here to talk about today. You like yeah. challenges, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, to be honest, it's a bit like negative people. You should kill them as well. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it plays hell with your HR team. Um, no, but... but <laughs> no, but, but seriously, I mean, how many people in this room have had a good idea? You're in a bar, you've got a good idea, and by the time you finish that damn drink, the person next to you has implied that people like you don't have the sort of ideas that change the world. Actually, the sort of people that change the world are exactly people like us. Therefore, it stands to reason, therefore, you must kill the people who persuade you that you're not. <laughs> De facto. <Yeah. laughs> some of the ghost stories that surround the lost gardens of Heligan? Yes. There are some. What are they? You don't want to talk about that? Are there children about? No, no, if there are children about, I don't want to. You don't want to talk about that? No. It'll scare them. It'll scare, the, it'll scare the bejesus out of them. So there are ghost stories about them? Uh, yes. And uh, who, who tells you these ghost stories? People, visitors or workers on the... Well, on hundreds the of visitors to start with. Hundreds. And then there was an event that was very serious and we had to get the Bishop of Truro to come and exorcise part of the gardens. And then were those incidents... Did, did that go away then, the, the problems created that you, led you to call in the bishop to excommunicate? Could you rearrange this phrase off and another one? <laughs> I don't talk about it with kids, perhaps about Okay, fine. Sorry, I'm not being deliberately enigmatic, it's just that... You don't want to distress children. If you knew what I might have told you, you'd say, God, you shouldn't tell that in front of kids. Okay. So I'm not telling you. And now you're thinking, God, that's really interesting. Yeah. It, it it's an old technique, there's nothing to tell. It, 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 clearly you put some store in these stories though, if you felt the need to go ahead and do that, to have the place exercised. You're sticking with this really heavily, aren't you? Um, 
look, I'll tell you the nice bits, okay? There were loads of stories that hundreds of people wrote to me about being escorted by people through parts of the garden and they then disappeared. That was the nice bit. It was a friendly thing, but it was just mystifying. And that got dealt with. How did the locals in Cornwall feel about the... About what? About the Lost Gardens of Heligan, by and large. <laughs> I'm moving on from ghost stories now. Um, I think that, uh, I think that the people of Cornwall love the Lost Gardens of Heligan. I mean, we have 350,000 people a year come, and a lot of them are Cornish. And we have... Uh, the, the, my favourite thing about Heligan um, is that we have more gardeners there today than we did in the days of the Victorians. In the days when it is supposed to be very unhip to employ lots and lots of people because labour, of course, is a luxury. We find, actually, the more quality labour we employ, the more people love the place we've got because they've got more people to talk to and it's better and better and better. It's cool. Having had such this key, ro key role in instigating the gardens, what gives you the most pleasure from it now, now that it's open and when you're in the place? What gives me the most pleasure? Mm. Is knowing that people go there and fall in love there and people have their ashes scattered there and people have moments that are their private moments. I love meeting people who have made it theirs in their imagination. Uh, and I don't get a sense of ownership, I just get this tremendous sense of pleasure that we had the privilege of doing something which has been a stage on which other people are making their lives. And with every person that falls in love there, with every set of ashes that's scattered there, the plates of time get thicker, the meaning of the place gets deeper. And that gives me a lot of satisfaction. Is it lovely to see kids running around the place? just taking delight in what they see and what they encounter? Uh, yeah, one of the funniest things though is that we put in a bridge, a 60 meter long rope bridge that is quite dangerous the way it swings. The old people like it the most. I don't know what it is. I, I'm obviously not old enough, but you see the 70 and 80 year olds, they make straight for the bridge. It's a test. I think it's a bit like that thing I'm told that when you get to about 75, you try when no one's watching to put on socks by standing on one foot. I think it's got that kind of same sort of kind of thrill and excitement. You know. <laughs> <laughs> your uh, mum was English, your dad was Dutch. Uh, you were a music producer for many years. How were you introduced to music as a child, Tim? Um, I used to lift the lid on my grandmother's grand piano and I would put my foot down on the sustain pedal and bang every single note. And then I'd put my head to the soundboard and I would just wait and wait and wait until the noise turned into this beautiful chord. If you've never done that, if anybody in this room has never done that, it explains something very profound. Do that. It is really weird how the noise of all that noise, all the, all the chords, all the notes playing together suddenly creates this enormous beautiful chord right at the end. And it then makes you think very differently about chaos, whether chaos is something absolutely beautiful that you just haven't understood yet. It's very profound. So you're saying you, you'd knock out a whole bunch of cacophonous notes that would make a, a racket that then would no, resolve... No, not like that. That's puffy stuff. Bang! Bang. Right, yeah. right bang. Yeah. And then that would resolve itself eventually into it, some... It, it dies harmony. to the echo of a beautiful, powerful chord. It does. I mean, we don't have to talk about it. We could do it. If we had a grand piano, we could do it. We could all do it. We could all put our heads to the soundboard. It's very good. This is chaos theory, isn't it? The idea that things that are seemingly random actually have all these correspondences and harmonies that need to be, that can be seen if you look at it from a different angle or hear it from a, in a different way. No, no, it, it's, it, it's fascinating, but it's also really interesting to go outside. When you all leave here today, what, what, what's really fun is to go and have a look at a tree and then really look at a tree and then you go, crikey, 
They don't look at all like my imagination suggests. It really doesn't. If you'd ask me what is the, probably the most profound hour of my life in terms of concentrating, it was when a friend said to me, would, you, would I give him an hour to change my life? And he pegged out one meter square in a, in a field. And he says, I want you to look at that square as if the devil himself is about to come out of it. And it's really interesting when you do that because after a while you start to see all the stems of grass as opposed to grass nurse, they become the stems and then you see the insects and then all the insects and suddenly you realize you've got this entire world that you just had never noticed before. And it has two things. One is profound that you realize the complexity and beauty of the natural world and the other is it stops you wanting to walk in a field ever again because you feel it's genocide, you know, it's <laughs> terrible. But no, I, I think one of the things is about looking. I mean, looking at things is, is vital. I try to look at things. I'm, as you can tell, I'm a bit of a gobby fellow, but I think listening and looking are absolutely vital because most people don't look very hard at stuff. And they think life... The other thing is people say, life is so fast today. Never trust anybody who says life is so fast today. Because these are the fuckers that are addicted to emails. You know, they are, you know. And actually, the truth is, life is no faster than it ever was. It's just that people are skating really fast across the top. Um, and it stops people concentrating. Because if you look at something really closely, you, you understand something that you then don't need to study again. Whereas when things are going really fast across the top, you have to keep coming back to it, come back to it, come back to it. You studied archaeology. Did you work as an archaeologist, Tim? Well, I use the word work advisedly. <laughs> um, I did work on an archaeological dig in Woola in Northumberland, and it was unbelievably cold. But I learned something really fundamental, which was there was an ex-Vietnam veteran there who had the most fantastic gift I've ever seen in a man. He could roll a cigarette with one hand in a force eight gale. I mean, don't you all wish you could do that? God, my university days were wasted. No, I, I, but after that, I went to work at the Bose Museum in Barnard Castle, which is a fantastic museum, during the hot summer of 1976, which was archaeologically the most interesting year in British history, because it was so hot that all the crop marks came up everywhere. The archaeology of Durham was trebled in three months as we found all this stuff. But the pay was so bad that I couldn't actually afford to drive to work and back and have lunch. It was a choice. So I decided that I was meant to be in the world of rock and roll, because obviously I was destined to be successful. <laughs> so what, how, how were you lured out of the world of archaeology into rock and roll? It's called starvation. Um, yeah, and, and then we, we, we went down to uh, London. Because it's really interesting, wherever you are, it's somewhere else that the gold is, isn't it? So we were, in, we were in the north, therefore it was quite obvious that if we went to London, it was just going to be easy down there. So we went down there because, of course, the roads were paved with gold. And on any night of the week, there were 30,000 musicians better than me there. So we ended up on Social Security and driving a minicab, um, which was a very salutary experience. And then um, I struck very lucky. My, my whole life is about coincidences. And you heard about the pig. That was the first thing. The pig took me down the latter course of my life. The first part of my life was steered by kicking someone very hard in a game of football on Clapham Common. I kicked him very hard and then someone just happened to mention as he was writhing on the ground that he was a sound engineer at Abbey Road Studios. <laughs> so I suddenly became very solicitous for his well-being. 
And uh, that led to me being invited to go and record at Abbey Road, and that led to getting record deals, and then that led to a few hit records, and that, so, and then that led to my hating music, and then going to Cornwall, and meeting a pig, and then, you know. Yeah, uh, well, I'm just struck with the fact that most people who go into archaeology rarely leave it, unless they've got a bad back or bad knees. Uh, but then the world of rock and roll beckons, and then suddenly you're helping create, create hit records, and why would you leave that world then? What took you out of that world? Because it wasn't clearly starvation and poverty, because you, you became very, very successful in that world, Tim. I hated it. The people are dreadful. I mean, honestly, I don't know whether any of you... This is actually really the wrong place to be saying this, isn't it? The WOMAD <laughs> festival. But, you know, um, most of the people in the popular music industry are rather disgracefully louche. And there's something repulsive of men over 50 trying to in, enjoy popular music as well. I know, I've done it. You know, I just, you know, I just don't like the sound of it. No, seriously, it is a horrible business and it's full of crooks. And I just decided one day, as well as having a fear of flying, which didn't help, I was flying all over the place, I was drinking like a fish. And um, it just felt seedy. It felt seedy. And actually, if I was being really honest, really honest about it, when you love something, and I really love music, when you have to turn it into your living and then to do it, to be popular, you have to do things that is not actually how you hear music. You actually feel it's a bit of a betrayal. That sounds a bit heavy, doesn't it? So had you cut yourself loose from music? For, and how long were you cut adrift from music before you got the pig? Um, I saw your lips move, but I didn't understand what you said. Sorry, I was going <laughs> to say, had you... Had, uh, I just wanted to get the idea. You, had you quit the music industry before you then thought, I'll get a pig? Uh, is that what happened? No. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, shall I answer the question I think you've asked? Um, are it's you pretty straightforward. I just want to know if you'd quit music and then you decided to uh, become, uh, live on a property and, and get the two pigs. Oh, oh, no, no, no. What happened was I was on holiday in Cornwall and right. it rained and I went into an estate agent okay. and I bought a house not intending to. Uh, and that sort of made me think, actually, I should quit the music industry. And I ended up in Cornwall, which is ridiculous. It's 280 miles away from London. I'd never been there before in my life. It's crazy. But, I mean, these things happen. So that brings us to the Eden Project, which yep. was when you wanted to step up and do something much bigger and grander that would affect even more people in the world. I, I've not been there, but my understanding is that you've created it so that you were the, the, the sense of arrival has enormous drama to it. Can you describe what happens to people who arrive at the Eden Project, how they arrive at it? Well, I ought to just describe, first of all, what we were trying to achieve. I was always much impressed by that wonderful etching, I'm sure everybody in the room has seen it, of um, David Livingston uh, discovering Victoria Falls. It's a very famous picture with him on the top of Victoria Falls with a, with a, a hat, you know, his stovepipe hat, but his jaw is just like that. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could find a place that even the greatest cynic would go just for a moment? Yeah. Um, and that was allied to the thought of Arthur Conan Doyle's, you know, lost civilizations, lost worlds, and a crater of a volcano. And the whole thing came together in a, an appreciation in the clay district in, in Cornwall, where you've got these huge holes and the derelict clay mine. Uh, and this particular one is a perfect one because it's yeah, I was deep. Go, I was, I was going to get to that, but I just wanted to give a sense of what it is before we oh, start talking about how it's a sodding great about. hole. Yes. It's a really, really big hole, and you cannot see what's inside until you're right on the lip of it. And that was the idea, that you shouldn't see it from afar. 
It's the opposite of a cathedral, because a cathedral is meant to be on flat ground so that it goes high, so people can be in wonder at what they see in the distance, whereas this you can't see until it's like a pearl in the bowl of the oyster. So did you see the site first and the idea came from that, or was the idea in your mind, pre was it present in your mind, and then you went looking for a site for such a thing? We were hunting for the site. Yeah, I have seen every single hole in Cornwall. <laughs> no, I have. I have, and the moment we saw this one, you just knew. You just knew it was the right one because most of the holes in Cornwall have got a hole and then they've got like a bit which, where, where you hemorrhage in from the outside. Whereas this one has got a perfect lip so that you can read the telemetry of it. It's got a perfect edge. So it does feel like a lost civilization is possible inside it. What was it when you first saw it, this hole, this quarry? It was a clay mine. It was called a, a teaspoon mine uh, because the clay inside it was very, very valuable. Um, it was used in fine art papers. Uh, and uh, uh, it was just coming to the end of its life. So we, we bought it from the company that had it. How did you see the potential in it? Because I've seen photos of it before you even built on it, and it looks like a, a great big, complicated, muddy, open-cut clay mine it's, it's, it's not at all obvious, the, the potential of that place. No, but the, the thing is, you're setting me up to look heroic. The truth is, there is nobody in this room, aged 12, who did not dream of building a mad Ludwig castle, a big dam, <laughs> a great, you know, that's what you do as a human being when you're aged 12. So it wasn't a huge leap, it was a hole. Fill it with something wonderful, you know. Go for it, honestly. That's all it was. Yeah, but that's all anything ever is. You just got to believe in that you can transform it. Who did you have in mind for it? What, what, who was it for in your mind? Uh, in my mind, it was for everybody. It's only market researchers who say, what's your target audience? Which is just like everybody. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, you know, we were talking backstage. I said, if the scientific institutions of the world were any good, they're all crap. They're rubbish. If they were any good, the politics of the world would be different because all of us would be educated and would believe that we should protect it. And we don't, therefore they're up to blame. Therefore we obviously need new types of institutions, new types of stories which get, make everybody get it. Yeah? yeah. We were also talking about this backstage, but uh, some years ago I met and interviewed a man called Richard Louvre, uh, who I know you're familiar with, who identified a syndrome he called nature deficit disorder in children today, because most of what they hear about the environment is cloaked in guilt and shame, and there's all sorts of reasons for that, as we know. But he said the overall effect it has is that it alienates children from nature. It makes them not want to go near it, and so there's less tree climbing, less tree houses, less examples of children mucking about in nature, getting lost for the day in the wilderness. Are you, are you trying to, with this, trying to be, looking at children specifically, I know you say this is for everyone, but are you, are you trying to reconnect, create that different idea of nature, that different kind of connection with nature, with children particularly? Well, there's two things there. I mean, R Richard Liv is a, is a great writer, a great point. I mean, I'm always rather suspicious of people who come up with disorders and syndromes. I think we love all those. Mm. However, um, I think playing outside, we all instinctively know to be right. But this brings me to another attack, right? I hate, I don't know whether there's an equivalent in Australia, but in Britain there's a newspaper called the Daily Mail. And what I hate, and what I hate about the media, 
I loathe about the media. I despise the media. And I despise it because there is this kind of observers, our job is to observe from the outside as we ourselves corrode society because all that we wish to observe is that which is wrong. So you actually have an entire society that is living at a time which is better and safer than it has ever been in the history of whole humankind to live and yet everybody thinks that every stranger is a paedophile, every road has got a terrorist and a crack dealer on it. Even my mother, who lives in Camberley, for heaven's sake, believes there are crack dealers at the end of her lane. Crack dealers couldn't find the end of her lane. <laughs> and it's just miserable. Um, and, you know, get some perspective. We are living at a time which is a time of miracles. And it's being corroded for us because the world hears about the bad stuff. Do people in this audience know there have been more scientific advances in the last 17 years than in the history of humankind up until then? It is a time of extraordinary advance. And it is of such advance that we've gone in the last three years, we've gone from understanding large chunks of the human microbiome to understanding also the substrata of the soil, the mycorrhiza, and understanding miraculously that this generation in this audience could be the first generation of living creatures that actually realizes that it is a part of the natural world in as much as that tree, what was hippie shit when I was alive in the 60s, is now scientifically starting to be proven to be factually true that we are one with the way the world is, which should lead to some extraordinary insights to do with our well-being and whatever. At exactly the same time that the fifth estate, which is the Twitterati and all the rest of it, and the fourth estate, which is people like yourself, are trying to destroy us. Not you, personally. I hold oh, I, you in high regard. But it, what I Thank you. I, I normally confine my world-destroying days Monday to Friday. This is uh, a weekend. So I know, I that's right. Thank God for that. Sorry, that was a bit heavy-duty, wasn't it? Let's, 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 let's talk rubbish. Right? No, I was going to invite you to go further, actually. How does this kind of poisoned public dialogue sort of infect political conversations amongst, amongst political leaders in Britain and elsewhere, as you've observed it? Well, at the risk of being a ranter, I think the word political leadership is now an oxymoron. Oh. <laughs> anyway. I don't know whether it is the same here, but we deal, with, we deal with a lot of politicians in the projects that we're building around the world. I thought it was a joke. I thought when you saw programs like The Thick of It or In The Loop or the rest of it, that it was a spoof, like, yes, minister, yes, prime minister. To actually discover you're talking to politicians who actually hold the opinion of a journalist more important than the weight of academia or, you know, a moral compass. It's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, leadership is about being able to describe the sunny uplands to which we might ascribe or aspire, rather. And you don't see any of that. I'm delighted with Trump. I can't tell you how much I love that man. You know, I seriously do. You know why? Because we deserve it. We, I, I mean this. I'm not saying this for effect. I really, really believe that we deserve what we've got. Because those of us in this room who are wishy-washy liberals like myself didn't fight hard enough with the language we needed to use that was muscular and factual. 
And I think actually maybe Donald Trump is going to be the most extraordinary thing because I think an awful lot of people are going to say, the guy's actually mad. And then you have to define what you believe in a solid way rather than just touchy-feely stuff. And that may be actually what we need. I know that sounds an odd thing to say, maybe, oddly, but you know. Gay and I, my partner over there, we went to Thailand and there was this woman who had produced The Simpsons for 25 years. And she was supposed to be a Hillary Clinton fan and she just laid, there was several billion pounds of philanthropy in the room and she just laid waste to them and said, I love you Americans like me. Remind me how many of your boys died on the fields of Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. What she was basically saying was it's really nice when you go to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and MIT to talk about owning a country. But if you don't get your hands dirty, you don't go and visit the people who you claim to represent and then like to package them up and where we're operating in politics is something that's done to you. It's really interesting that we do live by politics at a distance. And I don't know many people who get their hands dirty. And I think actually democracy, we have believed, is about a vote. And that's a terrible mistake. It isn't about a vote. It's having the information on which to vote. And I think that if we took some time to look at the countries we live in and what we actually need to do and learnt about what we need, we wouldn't have these demagogues preaching at us. So education, sorry, this was a very rambling answer to what you said before, which is about education being absolutely crucial. Well, it is crucial, but it's as crucial for us as it is for them. Because there's a great, if you drive into Wales, there's a, a piece of graffiti on a wall somewhere, just as you go over the bridge, which says, some open mines should be closed for repair. <laughs> You know, but, but it's really interesting. It's really interesting. I wonder how many of you in the audience have ever asked yourself this question. What do I feel passionately about that I know nothing about? And the answer is probably almost everything. No, it's the same for me. I mean, I'm not trying to be on some superior higher ground. But then you ask yourself, where did I get those ideas from? Where did I, why do I think that? And you know, you'd look at me, you probably think I'm an environmentalist, don't you? Well, you probably do, you should do. I mean, you should think that guy, obviously he cares about the environment. But you, know, you want to know the truth? If I was told I had to spend the rest of my life on a desert island with the environmentalists I know, I'd shoot myself. <laughs> that sanctimonious, self-serving, I'm right, I know what the planet needs. Jesus Christ, it makes me want to drive a Porsche. <laughs> You're with me, aren't you? You know this is true. No, um, I, so, where was I? I got so excited no, I, about that. But, uh, well, this does lead to my next question. Given that you're normally so shy and retiring in your points of view, and, and, and I'm honestly wondering, given that, seriously, given your belief in being plain, strong, sim simple language, somehow, in order to get this project, the Eden project, off the ground, you had to bring boardrooms of people together from government, from industry, raise money from all sorts of different sources. Did you have to just sit there and keep shtum while they talked about key stakeholders and impacting and, and that kind of thing? What did you do? How did you, did you punch yourself in the head as they, <laughs> as they were talking? How did you manage that, Tim? Well, there's a lady over there, my partner, Gay, who uh, uh, did, she raised all the money. So there were times when I had to be quiet. Um, no, the truth is, uh, seriously, it is pointless speaking to a lovely audience like this if you can't share with people, A, there is no reason why you can't do really big things but you need to understand a number of things. If you want to do something big, the first thing you need to know is what you don't know and what you're not good at, and then find people to do those things for you. 
The world needs dreamers, but the world of money fears dreamers. Therefore, you need to, Gay came up with a great phrase, which was, you, you need to, to dare to dream and organize to deliver. The sexy win-win combination is dreaming, which is then made hard by showing how you can actually deliver that dream in such a way that people who don't trust dreamers will actually put their money there. And the great joke of it is, and this is the tragedy about dreaming, if you look at the Eden Project, it costs 144 million pounds. We turn over 25, 26 million pounds a year. It is a stupid investment. What idiot spent that sort of money getting 25, 26 million pounds a year? It's crazy, isn't it? Everybody in the world should have shot us, except this is how crazy ec economics is. The truth is we have raised 1.9 billion billion pounds sterling on the back of the Eden Project for Cornwall. And that is really interesting that one of the things that people who dream need to understand is economics. And I think, now I'm talking on my feet, one of the things I started to hate about the music industry was people who said they were artists and said they wouldn't owe money and I don't do money. Well, it's pathetic not to do money. Because if money is embodied energy that you need to release to make dreams come true, and you don't understand it, it means you're an amateur and you don't deserve the luck. Don't you agree? You've got to learn how to use the stuff. If you want to win battles to create magic stuff, you've got to understand the rules by which magic is made. And what is one of the things that politicians don't understand, because in my experience, most politicians and this sounds like I'm being a Gabby git, but I have met very few politicians that I would employ. And I mean that. There are very few that I've regarded as intelligent enough to employ for a real job. You know, looking good in a suit, yeah, maybe, but not actually doing stuff. And the trouble is they always want to please business people because they, they find business sexy and they don't understand business. So they do this side thing, it costs this, therefore we can't afford it. The issue is, the genius of understanding money and being able to dream is understanding the moment at which not only do you know the cost of things, you understand the cost of not doing things. It's at that moment that you can release magic. So if you transform something and it costs you 20 billion pounds, but at the end of it, people are happy, jobs are created, people come and visit and it creates a huge amount of money, if you were allowed to take all of those things to account, you would invest very, very differently. And in this country and in Britain, you might say it might make a lot of sense to quintuple the amount of money we spend on education because the result will be at the end of it, you will save shed loads. Mm. The way you're talking, it seems like you found the benefit of making a great, big, strong, radical proposal. That tends to knock down things and create space where you can create something enormous. Uh, I, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, which was Constantinople, constructed under the Emperor Justinian, who said to his architects, there's just two, two instructions, build me the greatest building in the world and do it very quickly. And so it was completed in five and a half years where... For example, Notre Dame took a century to build. What kind of instructions did you, Just, Justinian of the modern age, give to your developers, builders, architects, in order to create the Eden Project? Well, the truth is, the landscape architect was given the shortest brief, I think, in history, 
which was, we want Picasso meets the Aztecs, sex on a stick, go. Picasso meets the Aztecs, sex on a stick, go. Yeah, that's true, that's true. And the, <laughs> architect, uh, the architects and the, the constructors were told that it would open on St. Patrick's Day. We were just told it will open on St. Patrick's Day. I don't care whatever happens, you will open it on St. Patrick's Day. That's true, because the guys that saved it from disaster were Irish, and I knew that for us to be lucky, it needed to be open for St. Patrick's Day, and we needed to drink a lot of Guinness. No, luck, luck, symbolism is important in things. Therefore, it had to be done, and it was. We opened on St. Patrick's Day. When you look at uh, photographs of the Eden Project, you, you see these two extraordinary bubbles coming out of the side of the cliff, landing on the f floor of the pit around it. And it's not until you actually really see a video of it, you realise how super massive these, these, these bubbles are. Tell me how you and the designers hit upon this idea of these super massive bubbles to contain the different biomes. Um, the bubbles were dreamt of because of washing up. Um, the junior architect on the project, we were having real problems because the bottom of the pit was continued to be dug out. So they, after six months, the architects were tearing their hair out because they couldn't get the foundations in. And the junior architect was doing the washing up and he sat down and he saw the soap bubbles had landed all over the bump, you know, on the side of the, the um, washing, uh, the drying thing. And he went, bubbles, bubbles. And that was the answer. It sounds like we're making it up, doesn't it? It's true, that's exactly how it was. So they're two effectively gigantic greenhouses. What are the little bubbles made of, aside from you know, the hexagonal or octagonal or whatever? Uh, uh, the, they're made of ethyl tetrafluoroethylene, ETFE foil, a cling film with attitude. You can bounce a mini on them, they, they're really strong. Triple glazed, one man can lift an 11 meter panel. They're brilliant. Oh, they're not hard at all, are they? They're soft. They're like, what, like pillows, are they? Is they're pillows, they yeah. Yeah, when you can walk across them and you can squeeze them and fondle them, you do whatever you like with them. What's Footi your poison? The footage of them, th th there's, there's a sense of generosity about the place. You can see that in, in the footage of it. The feeling that people have that walking through this place, it feels like a bit of a present made just for them. That's I hope so. I hope so. It's a very lovely, it's a very lovely place. Um, one of the other things that people will notice is there's no advertising. We don't allow advertising on the site. And most people don't notice that, except they know there's something that they've missed. And it's actually really interesting. The only advertising there is on the beer, it does say what beer you're drinking, but that's about it. Aside from all the beautiful plants in the two different biomes, one is Mediterranean, one is a tropical rainforest, what kind of creatures live inside these biomes? Creatures? Yeah. Um, well, we don't have creatures by intent. We have. Well, we've got some birds called Sulawesi white eyes that like cockroaches, and we've got some ground-loving quail that also like cockroaches. The Sulawesi white eyes are amazing. They, they're a big breeding population, but they're fantastic. They're like World War II Spitfire pilots. They come in and they do barrel rolls behind a cockroach. They come in, they peck a cockroach in the arse and suck its guts out, just like that. It's unbelievable to watch. Come on, no one's ever said that to you before. You know. <laughs> no, amazing. Um, but the, the really cool thing is that, that our biomes are now full of British birds who realize that, you know, why go on holiday? Why fly 3,000 miles? <laughs> you know, I mean, this, hey, you know what they say, hey people, if, if your choice was to fly over mad Frenchmen and Italians and Maltese people all trying to shoot you, what would you prefer, to just 
go through a little flap and have a nice holiday without doing any flying. I, it's easy call. But we've now got, we, the BBC came to do a documentary on the robins in our biomes. The robins are so laid back, they're supposed to be very territorial and fight, but ours just go, hey man, you know, Jesus, should we play? Should we just do that playing stuff? And they do all this playing stuff. And the BBC did this documentary, which is hilarious, because these birds that are meant to be sort of biting each other to death, pecking each other to death, they're basically sitting around chatting and, you know, and, and, and they go for a snack, because they, they, they they, there's lots to eat. Um, I think, you know, so anyway, I, I don't know where we got to, but, but we've, got, we've got so many British birds in there that are just adoring it, and some British plants. It's really funny, all this stuff, because I, this is a really important point, you see, because the brambles that are supposed to be British, no one ever asked them whether they wanted to be in the rainforest, did they? They're in the rainforest, they're thinking, shit, this is good. They go wallop right across the mine, they love it like that. And so you can never tell what a native plant is. And I'm saying that because you may know that there's a really serious point coming with all this. There are some environmentalists, I don't know whether you've heard this, people, there are some environmentalists who think we should chainsaw down most of the trees in this botanic garden because they're foreign. They've been brought in by humans. They are not of nature. They are God's abomination. <laughs> well, fuck them, I say. Because this whole kind of fascistic approach to aliens is extraordinary. You get it in Britain as well, you know, Japanese knotweed. Have you heard about Japanese knotweed? All our riverbanks, we have Japanese knotweed. It's a pestilence. We must poison it. We must use broadshot. We must inject it with something. It's a perfectly harmless plant. It's just a plant. These are plants. They're quite happy. Have you noticed how us environmentalists lie a lot about how dangerous the intrusive plants are? It's just like racism, only it's green. <laughs> God, I'm going to get some poison pen letters, aren't I? Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about the opening ceremony you had for the Eden Project in 2001, Tim. What kind of a ceremony did you have? We had, I don't know, I'm looking at okay, about 3,000 people. Everybody who ever worked on Eden was invited to come with their families and be inside the main biome. No celebrities. Uh, we asked the Bishop of Truro to come because we liked him, but we said, would he mind saying something that wasn't religious? And he did, he was brilliant. He, this lovely poem about us being creaturely and being kind to each other and generous, and he did it in rhyme. And it was really weird because it was very moving and we all felt you know, a bit sort of misty-eyed. And then the bloody public came. It's terrible. After all these years building this thing, supposedly for them out there, then the public came and you went, ooh, don't like the look of them. <laughs> They're going around our beautiful garden. We don't like that. You know, it, was very <laughs> it was very funny, it was. It was a very funny sensation, a bit like a whole bunch of strangers had come for a party at your house. Um, but we got over it. So, ob obviously, you do this to give a... to build on that beautiful sense of ownership that the workers had in the place. Is this a, a part of your style of leadership, Tim? I don't know. I think I'm just normal. I think most of us, most of us are at our happiest in good company around a kitchen table. Is that not true? Is that not where we're happiest? Mm. And, and I think the weird things that happen in life are when we forget that that's what makes us happy. And we start to think there are posh ways of doing things that are better than actually talking around the kitchen table. And we often talk about 
um, the leadership style of the Eden Project being convivial about just con conversational. Don't forget that an awful lot of this sort of masculine, let's organize the world to, uh, to be like an industrial revolution model of you know, mechanistic hierarchies, um, is just that. It was for an industrial revolution, and it was actually to do with mechanics. And the last time I looked, there's no one in this room is made of mechanics. I think we're creatures. And we're at our happiest when we hunt in packs and we talk to each other and we, we catch each other when we fall and whatever. So what are some of the things you ask your workers to do as part of this idea of building a kind of family type environment sitting across the kitchen table? We, there are all sorts of things we do, but um, I know where you're going with this question. I don't really want to go there because the trouble is, sorry, he's, he's about to ask me about something like the monkey business, which is a, a sort of system we have for uh, getting ourselves to think about things that we wouldn't normally think about. We try to create moments where together. We, take, we close down for two days and we spend a lot of time with each other. We talk about what our plans are. We do drumming and things, as you know. Um, Why don't you want to talk about that? Because what happens is people write notes and they think that there's a new sort of religion coming over the horizon. People are always looking for a new guru, and I don't want to be a guru. I'm not a guru. I make mistakes every day. I make so many mistakes, I don't want anybody to think I have a secret. I don't. I just normal. All right. Well, I'd, we'll take it as granted you don't want to start a religion out of this, but it's still a nice idea when it comes to employment practices, though, isn't it? Uh, okay. Well, we, we, we like to encourage ourselves to read books that we otherwise wouldn't read. Um, and review them on the grounds that most people think they're educated, but most people are dumb shit. And that includes myself. The problem is we like to think we're educated. I mean, it's really, it, the truth is that most of us, what passes for education is that we've read something clever by somebody else that we hope the person we're talking to hasn't read, so we look even cleverer. <laughs> Actual thinking, which we all aspire to, creates a lot of work. The, a good likening to this is when you go home and you're feeling knackered after a hard day's work and you put the television on and you put the controller there and you sit down and they, it, it's one of the difficult channels, it's a documentary and you're so knackered you can't even reach the damn thing to turn it off so you sit there like a, you know, a bird in the headlights and after an hour you go, wow that was really good, I've just got all this new information, I really love that. And I think part of what we all need is regular mountain streams of fresh information as opposed to feeding on the tired old crops that we've been feeding on all the time. You're never going to... You cannot move on if you hold on all the time to the views that served you last year and the year before. That is why, actually, marches about climate change and shouting at people are pointless. They're pointless because... At a certain point, you've got to realize you yourself never changed your mind when someone shouted at you. So why is someone else going to change their mind when you shouted at them? It's just not going to happen. Therefore, you've got to find a new story. And I'm really interested in people who've got new stories to tell. And it's really interesting. Again, going back to this trip to time, it was really interesting to see my friend Jonathan Porritt that many of you may know. Uh, uh, Jonathan, he, he's... He's been against genetic modification for 35 years. He's fought it. He's walked through crops and much of it. But for the first time, he said, I'm prepared to think about it now. I'm prepared to think about it. And it's really interesting how shocked everybody in the room was. What do you mean? You know, it was a bit like you're going to do something really criminal. But actually, we've got to learn that our views, our opinions are not the clothes we have to always wear. 
and that if we're not prepared to change, why should we expect others to change? Therefore, I think we need to give ourselves a kind of, what's the word, a, a moment of, uh, you know, when you have a peace bit way with your own views, you say, well, let's re-examine all those things. Let's see whether there's something new. And I've been doing that a lot recently, and it's really exciting to realize how many views you can drop, how many bits of your own prejudice you can put in the dustbin. How many of those have you done for yourself? How, how much have you changed your mind over things over the years? Um, well, most people who know me would actually be really grateful if I stayed on the same view for much longer than a day. But uh, the truth is, I do change my mind a lot because I love listening to clever people. Um, and when you put yourself in the way of clever people, you will often find that a prejudice you had is worth turning the light in a different way. Um, and I think there's, there's hardly anything that doesn't benefit from actually waiting that extra few seconds before you damn it. I, 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 but maybe that's because I'm old now. I'm 62. I should probably be put down. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's illegal. But um, <laughs> just, just, just finally, you said you want to set up Eden projects on every continent on Earth. How's that going? What's progress like? We're building three in China, including the first one in China is four times bigger than the Eden project. And the third one is going to be, I think, double that size. And they're all different. They're not going to look like the Eden Project in Cornwall. We said that we would do other Eden Projects, but only if they were each one was were culturally specific. So we're building one in Yan'an, which is the where Mao ended the Long March, um, which is going to be fantastic on the Loose Plateau. One in Tianjin, and one in Qingdao, which is the former German uh, port on, uh, between Beijing and Shanghai. We're building, uh, we hope, one in the USA. We've just bought, this is, I can't see how cool this is. This guy we know, I threw a gauntlet at him about this, these amazing trees, and he just made a lot of money. In the middle of Sequoia National Park is one plot of 500 acres with two of the biggest trees in the world on it. And I said, if you want to change the world, buy that plot and underneath it, we'll build the most beautiful conference center for 120 people to have conversations about the sort of things you could do. And the guy's gone and bought it. He's just bought it, cash, poof. How cool is that? That's amazing. And so last May the 23rd, I climbed the biggest tree in the world. I tell you what, I shat myself. I was so scared. But there were some very strong guys pulling me up, you know. And so I pretended I was climbing, and I, that's, that's top there. And I got right to the top, and then I realized how far up it was. And then you stroke this tree, and you realize it's three and a half thousand years old. And you realize how stunningly trivial we are. And you feel quite teary. And I feel quite optimistic that we're living in an age when we can actually share those experiences. So we're doing that, and we've got one, as you know, here in Australia. We're hoping to build something in Australia, and it's just, it could be really cool. If Australia was brave, it could be the coolest project in Australia's history. Well, there you go. There's the instruction. If Australia is brave, it could be the coolest construction in Australia's history. Let's hope we are brave enough. Thank you so much, Tim. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you, sir. Thank you. Tim Smith, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.